Well, hello. Um, this is uh, this is episode four now of Ethics Today, and our uh, guest uh, this evening is Robert Skur, who's a clinical supervisor in uh, uh, Johns Hopkins Health System. I believe you work at the Bayview Medical Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And um, and you are also a practicing psychotherapist. Um, so you have your own clients in addition to working as a supervisor uh, for, for others who are who are th themselves working for clients. Yes. Um, and I wanted to talk to you. What, what we're doing with this series is um, I, I'm interviewing a number of professionals in different areas of life because it, it seems to me that uh, we're facing as a society some of the most momentous ethical choices that we've ever faced. I think it, it, certainly in, in my memory, um, uh, we're facing these individually, like how do we respond to the requirements for social distancing? How do we, you know, adjust norms of etiquette? You know, when when somebody wants to shake hand and we we think, well, we're we're not doing that, and how how you know how do you deal with that? So some minor things, but also major things, um, and uh, affecting the common good. So one of the first discussions we had was about ventilator allocation and how do we make decisions about about um, how do we share very scarce resources and make decide decisions about who gets life-saving devices. Um, and what I wanted to talk to you about tonight is this idea of, of um, mental health because I'm hearing so much about the, the real or potential mental health effects of, of this pandemic and, and some I think from the pandemic, the fear of the, of the illness itself, but also the effects of social distancing and what the, both the short-term and long-term effects that might be. And, um, and you're in a kind of unique position because you're, you're both seeing clients yourselves as a, as a psychotherapist, but then you're, you're dealing with uh, patients in a, in a health system who have different kinds of needs. So could you just describe for us, like, who are, who are some of the patients you deal with and, and what are they facing right now? Yeah, it's interesting. So let me start just briefly with my private practice. For four weeks now, I've done only telemedicine um, therapy, either with Zoom or um, just by telephone. And it's interesting the you know, individuals I see there have a whole range of reactions from really liking it, you know, not having to bother with um, dealing with people out in society, not having to deal with, uh, there's no sports on TV, is one of the comments one of my clients always says that he likes a lot and he has more time to do his own things. Mm -hmm. Others feel really grateful that they're in a position where they can handle it. They feel like maybe a few years ago they couldn't. Um, some are frustrated at it and think it's, you know, just government overreaction and are really kind of perturbed at it. Few, I have yet to, either in my private practice or with the hospital, um, have any clients who've been affected, infected with the virus. Okay. Um, no colleagues either, just sort of remarkable at this point. And in uh, Baltimore, I mean, you've, I mean, there are a, num a lot of cases in Baltimore right now, isn't that right? Yeah, there are. And so 
Hopkins Hospital, particularly Bayview Hospital where I work, um, has a lot of dedicated units. It's put up tents outside to do triage and you know, protect the airflow and so on of treating patients. And it, it has a significant number, but not as I think we're prepared for more. Um, and hopefully we won't get there. But personally, um, only at you know, a remove of maybe three, the parent of a, a patient I work with was diagnosed and did die either from complications from coronavirus or other complications, but um, out of you know, dealing with almost, I'd say, directly with 80 and indirectly with over 200 patients that I'm familiar with, um, none of them have been diagnosed positive. So um, in your the range of reactions that you talked about are, are pretty much similar to what anybody might experience. I mean, yes. some of us, a lot of us are finding, you know, a return to maybe more meaningful activities or new ways of connecting with family, but also a yes. loss of many of our favorite things that we enjoy doing. And, and, yes. and um, but uh, what about the long-term effects of this? If this right. goes on, um, some form of social distancing or, and, you know, kind of the threat of pandemic and we're talking about maybe we'll have surges where we kind of, it, it becomes episodic. Do you think that you're going to see more serious problems as a result of that? I imagine so, yeah. I didn't really speak about um, my, the patients that I'm responsible for at the hospital and that's a different cohort of um, individuals. So at the hospital, I work with patients um, directly on my team. 60 patients are assigned on my team um, to be cared for by eight caseworkers and myself, um, plus psychiatrist and nurse and so on. So those patients, we call them members in our program, um, are diagnosed with severe chronic psychiatric illnesses. So they suffer from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder with psychotic features. So they you know, tend to live fairly marginal lives and um, struggle profoundly with um, mental illness, hallucinations, um, hearing voices, profound um, delusions, disorganizations, um, disorganizational behavior and thought. Typically, our, the patients we see have been inst institutionalized in state psychiatric hospitals, and kind of the rationale of my particular program is to keep them out of state hospitals and, in, and functioning in the community, which we do a really great job of. Functioning in the community um, looks like, you know, not wandering the streets. It looks like, um, staying in a group home and taking medications. Um, but ten, that life tends to be far better than being institutionalized. Those um, patients um, have responded in an interesting way so far to the crisis. Their lives have been you know, even more turned upside down. Many of them would have come to our program a few days a week and socialized and, you know, been involved in the community. Some have jobs. You know, all of that 
is basically lost to them and they're quarantined at home. And, and yet there haven't been, um, for the most part, severe reactions to that. There hasn't been, um, you know, defiance of the orders or psychotic breaks or acting out in severe self-injurious or um, threatening dangerous behavior to others, which kind of surprises me. Um, I think that could change over time, as you suggested, but right now there is almost a... Um, I think there's some truth to it. It sounds a bit like a facetious joke, but it's as though their world is now our world. Mm. Um, you know, they, many of them would live with a fear of being infected by others. And now we all have that fear. Um, they might not know social cues, like you said, about when to shake hands. Um, and when people are too close or too far, now we're all living that way with sort of invisible forces that are controlling us that we can't really see and government, you know, restrictions. So members that I work with might believe they work for the NSA or the CIA and are being told what to do. Well, we're kind of being told what to do. So in a way, this is the normal for them. It's not all that unusual. And maybe there's some comfort in seeing now everybody gets it. This is the world I've lived with. Um, yeah. So well, I think there's some truth to that. And I, you know, the, the studies that were done after the London bombing blitz in World War II were kind of, um, they, there, there was that expectation that there would be much higher incidences of depression and suicide and other kinds of mental health breaks. And in fact, all of those statistics went down during that time. And um, the kind of the thought is, well, in, in response to these crises, people come together. We find kind of a meaning in our common struggle. And uh, I wonder if there's some of that effect as well. only to the extent that there might be a sense of commonality. I don't think for the patients I've been talking about, they're really, they all, they live in their own worlds more or less. And yeah. so there isn't a lot of, um, you know, of course they enjoy each other, everyone's company to some extent, but maybe now they aren't being required to act like they enjoy it. Um, social isolation is, is something they're familiar with and even something that's maybe required of them because of their um, diagnoses or their, just their experience of life. So, so the um, very thing that many of us are maybe missing at this time, this, uh, this social connection is something that is, they experience as a burden, some of the, some of the members anyway. Yes, that's right. Some do, some do. And others, the social connection they are getting, being able to sit at home and watch TV with some other people is sufficient for them, whereas it might drive you or me stir crazy. For them, it is nourishing in a you know, socially affirming way. Um, okay. And they aren't being asked to do more. Um, I'm 
I think that's true, at least of a significant number of um, the patients I work with. Well, you, so in your, in your own practice and also with those that you're supervising other people that are, that are working directly with these members, um, do you feel like you're able to be as effective? I mean, you said some of your, some of your, um, some of your clients actually have enjoyed meeting by Zoom or telephone. Yeah. Or um, but how does like your understanding of what they're going through, is it as effective when you can't see them in person? Isn't there a lot of like nuanced observation that you have to make as a therapist? You would think so, and no doubt it's true. One client said to me, well, this is like psychoanalysis. I'm sitting behind them on a couch. I'm not you know, engaged in eye contact. We aren't communicating that way. Um, mm -hmm. It's only words um, and silences and pauses. And, um, and that is interesting to me i'm not a practicing analyst but i in my private practice certainly i do psychoanalytically informed psychotherapy and so um it just almost requires a deeper kind of attentiveness which i sort of enjoy about listening to just the words and not um maybe having less input in terms of other forms of communication, facial um, gestures and so on, um, really maybe allows us to go a little deeper or allows the client to um, not have to worry about me and interpret my reactions. I'm in, and because I've only done this, you know, for over a month or a month and a half, there's a long history with my clients of direct face-to-face -face communication. So they have a good sense of what it is like to talk to me, of who I am and I of them. So this almost, um, I think, can deepen the connection for a little while. Um, I don't know how long that'll last, but I'm kind of appreciating that. And, and it's a new challenge that's sort of interesting to me. Um, and you asked about the effect on the client. So that seems positive and so far, I think, to them. Right. Um, so, and, and you mentioned it, this deeper kind of attentiveness that you have to pay. And, and uh, when we talked for just a few minutes before we started recording here, and I asked you how you were doing, the first thing you told me was you're exhausted. Yes. And, um, and and so I would imagine that goes for the people that you're supervising as well, that there's a, there's, um, there's a greater kind of attentiveness you have to pay when, when you're doing things on screen. And then, of course, you're an administrator, so you've got a lot of meetings and so forth. So what's, like, what's, what's changed, I guess, in your work um, hmm. over the last uh, month to six weeks that you've been doing things this way? Yeah. Um. Although I spoke of the potential benefits to the clients in my private practice and sort of the potential psychotherapeutic benefit of this new <coughs> modality, um, it is exhausting for me personally. 
I think I get a lot out of one-on-one -on -one human contact. After I work a day at Hopkins and then do my private practice, I was very rarely exhausted coming home, or I maybe was physically tired, but I had just spent some quality hours talking to people about interesting things that they are, you know, deeply invested in their own lives. And that energized me. Um, and just being in their presence, I guess, energized me. And I find that doing telemedicine doesn't have that effect. Um, almost like we say goodbye and I'm just, I'm weary. Mm -hmm. um, and that was not the case when I met with them in my office. Right. So in terms of private practice, for me at least, there's um, a kind of exhaustion that comes with it. And I think for my staff who are caseworkers for their clients maybe would report similar things. They enjoy spending time with these people, going out in the community or having them sit at their desks or talk to them in an appointment or whatever, that it's, there's a lot of um, emotional feedback that's uplifting and it, that's why they got into this field. And now just to make phone calls, um, it's, you don't get the same enriching um, experience back. Right, and there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of weariness that comes from doing this work over and over from the very same location, the same physical location, right? And yes. You're yeah. oriented to a screen in the same way that like for every single person, um, I would imagine that it, after a while, it just becomes harder to pay attention to what people are saying and um, and you so you've got to push yourself harder to do that yeah yes definitely so what so as a as a supervisor how are you working with your team how are you keeping their energy up um, what I'm just curious what challenges yeah. you're facing as an administrator in this situation yes um, we do zoom um, twice a day, sort of a morning huddle that tends to be fairly short, just talking about what we're expecting to happen to the day in the day. Um, right now, of the eight people on my team, three are come to the location and um, five work remotely from their homes. Um, I think it's their homes, maybe it's their cars, I don't know where they're working from but <laughs> remotely um, no but working from home um, so we have a morning huddle where we talk about what's expected and then um, each afternoon we do rounds pre prior to COVID-19 we did rounds just three times a week and sometimes I would decide not to do them and rounds consist of going over all 60 members and talking about issues, concerns, keeping up with appointments, if there are any telephone appointments or telemedicine appointments now. And then, um, so the team, um, I admire deeply each of them and they're all really committed in their own ways to this work. Um, and it's a really high functioning team. 
has been. They have each other's backs, they enjoy each other. Um, you know, if somebody needs help, instantly other people are offering to do it. You know, I, I've worked with them for about three and a half years now and really got lucky to have taken on a high functioning team. Um, my job was just not to ruin that. And, um, but it's fraying. Um, they don't, they enjoy each other's company and now they're not sharing it. You know, they, I'm sure they chat and they talk and we meet twice a day, but um, they really enjoyed just each other's company and that's not happening anymore. Um, and so they, and, and there's not that camaraderie. Of course, they'll help each other, but it's not the same at all. Um, and there's less to help with. We're calling our patients to see how they're doing and um, anybody can do that, but it's, it, I mean, they can do it for each other, but it's not the same as saying, I'm driving over to this area of town. Does anybody need me to check on anybody? Right. That's not happening. So are you worried about what happens um, over the long term as you go on? We've been doing this for a few weeks now, yeah. and you're seeing that the, the kind of the support or the connection for one another seems to be fraying a bit with this team. Is this? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what we know is like from reports of burnout, it's really high in the medical professions, especially with nurses, but also social workers. Um, teachers also have a pretty high burnout rate, especially like over about a five-year period. It's pretty high. Um, and, and there's a number of things we can do, but we know that one of the really important things is, is the uh, friendship is so incredibly important and the time that people get to spend with one another, either developing friendships at work or after work. Um, and that's, it's just much harder to maintain those friendships right when you're not able to see one another and interact directly. Yes, yeah, very much so, yeah. Um, and there's certain staff on my team that I, I can see it's taking the toll already. They're um, less involved in our meetings, you know, certainly they're still doing their work and doing it well, but there isn't that enthusiasm. There's a kind of weariness, and I know some are facing issues at their homes, you know, working from home with with kids around is is very challenging. Yeah, yeah. So, what? How about yourself? How are you? How are you keeping your energy up? I know you have a number of uh, twelve hour days that you're spending when you're at Johns Hopkins, but then you've got clients in the in the evening that you see your own. Um, yes. How are you managing to keep your own energy up? I'm not sure. I, uh, I'm exhausted at the end of the day and I sleep. My sleep hasn't been as good. I usually have been a good sleeper and now I'm waking up and finding myself thinking about work. Yeah. Um, which is sort of new for me um, to be, you know, to be that consumed with it. Um, and the things that you know, have sustained me in the past are a bit taken from me. So, you know, walking in nature is not as easy to do. We're not, you know, parks are closed. 
mm-hmm. ride my motorcycle, but that's not exactly essential transportation. I can mm-hmm. say I'm, you know, in fact, I will ride it to, to work one day a week and make sure I have my ID and a letter from work saying I'm essential personnel, not that uh, state troopers seem to be pulling people over at this point to ask. Um, but that's a, a joy and on weekends, I'm not really going out for rides. Um, not yeah. going out to restaurants, which is always a great, is a pleasure. You know, like you, so for many of us, I mean, we, we lose some of these activities and it's a, it's an inconvenience, but I, I would guess that if you're, if you're somebody whose very job is to, to listen attentively to other people's struggles and you, and you, you take them into yourself. I mean, you have to, if you're really paying attention, um, this, the, the kinds of relief that you get from these other activities become almost essential to doing the job. That's how I justified the motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> so not, not enough to make it a tax write off sadly, but oh, okay. Well, well, we'll see. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, but yes, this has been a fascinating discussion because I, I was expecting to, to, hear more about the, like the real difficulties you had with telehealth, but really it's more the difficulties of managing your, yourself and your team is the main struggle here. And I'd be very interested to come back and talk to you in a couple months and uh, see how you're doing, how you're doing now. That'd be great, Rick. Thank you. Okay. Good to talk to you. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.